All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And lift off, the final lift off of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is the Space Shot, episode 384, Laura Forzik and the Rise of the Space Age Millennials. I'm John Mulnix. In this episode, we hear from Laura Forzik. I'm Laura Forzik. I am the owner of Astrolytical, which is a space consulting company. We chatted about her experience in the industry and what she found while researching for her book. The last two weeks have been extremely busy with news from new space companies, and we'll be catching up on all of that news in the next episode. For now, it's time to chat with Laura. Today, I've got Laura Forzik on the podcast. Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So for those of you, uh, for those of the listeners that don't know who you are, um, go ahead and give me like a little bit of your origin story and tell us about yourself. Sure. Well, I am a scientist by training. I got my bachelor's and master's in astrophysics and my doctoral work was in planetary science. And, and I've been in love with space for um, a long time now, since childhood. I know um, when I was a kid, I wrote a short story about being an astronaut on the moon. And so that's as long as, as <laughs> I've wanted to go be an astronaut. I still do. Um, and so when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, science was a passion of mine, especially physics. So I went to go study astrophysics and then I realized I didn't like coding so much. So I wanted to do something with my hands, switched over to what I call experimental planetary science. So planetary science, uh, you know, kind of studies in a lab. And then from there, um, I realized that I really liked the space industry and I started getting more and more active in the space industry. And I um, started analyzing things and meeting people and going to conferences. And then I got my first full-time job in uh, the space sector at uh, the nonprofit CASIS, which handles international space station payloads for NASA for the benefit of Earth. And so doing a lot of fun stuff with reviewing proposals and facilitating research and talking to scientists and engineers and trying to get really awesome experiments on the space station that benefit, directly benefit humanity on Earth, which was awesome. Um, and then from there, I got um, recruited by a company that no longer exists, but they were wanting to do um, point-to-point transportation. So um, you do suborbital space travel around the world really fast. So think of those really fast airplanes like the Concorde, but even faster. higher in altitude all the way up to, yeah, faster and higher in altitude all the way up to suborbital space. Um, and so I was running their Florida office until they went bankrupt, unfortunately, because oh, not no. all space startups, you know, Sadly. they don't all work. <laughs> yes. Um, but... From that point, I was actually nine months pregnant with my first child, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to go get a full-time job right now, <laughs> and so um, I realized, well, why not start my own company? So um, I sort of dove into it. I call myself an accidental entrepreneur because I never intended to be one, never intended to start my own company, but I had nothing to lose, and so I just started Astrolytical three years ago now, and been building it ever since really excited about the um the plans i have for this year i, I want to get i want to do them all like right now <laughs> so, trying to pace myself yeah, that's important if you're an entrepreneur if you own your own business you have to pace yourself you can't go too crazy <laughs> yes. 
So one of the things that you're launching this year is your book, which is Rise of the Space Age Millennials. It's the space aspirations of a rising generation, which you can actually back right now on Kickstarter. So what's your book about? I'm so excited about this. It's been three years in the making almost. So um, in 2016, I got this idea from just, just, I am an older millennial and <laughs> I guess it's fashionable for um, people to write articles about millennials and um, really the, the negative stereotypes of millennials. And I never really felt like those rung true for me. Yeah. And so I wanted to get a firsthand account from various millennials like myself about how they feel and how they work and what they do and especially focusing on the space sector. So I interviewed a hundred millennials working or intending to work in the space sector, sciences, engineering, um, and then related fields as well. And just trying to probe them as to their vision for the future of space and what they want to accomplish and how they like to work and, you know, trying to gather both perspectives on the space sector that um, really tie to the millennial generation as well as kind of underlying probing of those stereotypes and really excited to have it all come together. I'm a first-time author, so it took me a lot longer than I intended it for me to take. I, I had another baby in there. I put things on hold. I've had four moves in between then oh and now, gosh. so oh yeah. Uh, so things are more stable now. I was actually able to to really get to the completion stages, but um, because this is an independent book, I needed to go ahead and pay for editing and art and publishing and formatting and all these other uh, costs that go into it. So that's why I decided to run the Kickstarter, sure. um, which met its goal within the two hours. That's awesome. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I, I'm really, really surprised and honored that uh, people really wanted this book and wanted to support this book. So you can go on Kickstarter. Um, I'm going to add a stretch goal of an audiobook, but I haven't done that yet. Cool. Um, and so I also am going to um, throw up the Amazon pre-order page at some point soon as well. So if you don't want to back it on Kickstarter, you can just pre-order it on Amazon. And I, I'm really excited to have it out. I'm aiming for April. Okay. So I, I'm crossing fingers and hoping that everything's done by April and I can get it out there. For sure. Well, and I'll be sure to link to the Kickstarter and everything in the show notes. Um, so if, if anybody wants to pre-order or to back on the Kickstarter, do check out the show notes um, for that Kickstarter link. You know, Laura, as a millennial myself, I'm almost an elder millennial, I guess. Yes. Yes. Um, this, you know, I'm really excited to hear the perspectives of other people that are our age in the industry, especially because there's so many people that are going to be retiring soon that have been working at NASA for a long time, that have been working at JPL and other institutions. You know, what what was one of the most surprising things you discovered when you were talking with um, people for this book? I was all that surprised with some of the things I uncovered because they were more or less what I expected to uncover. It was just nice to have actual firsthand testimony accounts of how people feel and, and you know, when it's not all negative. I think what surprised me the most, and, and maybe I shouldn't be surprised, is the optimism. Because um, I myself am an optimistic person and not, not everyone is. Um, but <laughs> there seemed to be just so much optimism for the future. It's it's not a cynical look. It's not, it's not necessarily a jaded look. It's really refreshing 
to have, you know, person after person that I interviewed express this real true hope for the future. And there were very few people that I interviewed that um, didn't think that the millennial generation would accomplish great things. Um, there were, you know, there were a couple that, that were very skeptical and very um, conservative in their, their hopes for the future. Um, but the, most people were just overwhelmingly optimistic. And maybe that is, a, you know, a sample bias considering I only interviewed millennials working or intending to work in the space industry. And the space industry seems to bring out um, optimistic, forward-thinking people. And, of course, I only interviewed the ones who actually agreed to be interviewed. So maybe the skeptics or the cynics stayed behind. But well, you I know, was just really pleased to have that refreshing point of view. Yeah, well, you know, I think from my experience with the younger people that I've talked with, with millennials, I think that is an accurate assessment. Um, there's a lot of optimism. And, you know, we've chatted before on Twitter about that is I, you know, I think this is the golden age for spaceflight right now. It wasn't 20 years ago. It wasn't 30 years ago. It wasn't 40 years ago. It's right now with the amount of robotic missions that we have with what's happening with commercial crew, with what's going to eventually go on at the moon and then Mars. There's lots of reasons to be optimistic. So I'm glad that I'm not alone in that. <laughs> I do take the point of view of a skeptic. I'm a scientist by training, and so I, I require the evidence. And I sure. have like a you know a very like show me the money kind of attitude <laughs> when it comes to a lot of the plans. But um, at at the heart, I am an enthusiast for space, and so I, I have the hope that we will accomplish great things. And this isn't to say that the older generations didn't have that same hope. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's an age thing. And I explore that in the book a little bit about um, you know age versus generational differences. Um, but I do feel like now is a more realistic time. Golden age is a great, great way to put it because we're not going to be so reliant on the start and stops of government politics. Mm -hmm. And I, I say this as we're going through the government shutdown right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, in, in other ways, there's been a lot of starts and stops over the decades with NASA's plans and, and other governmental plans for space. But now that we have hopefully a sustained uh you know, profitable and, and a vast economy in which to um, promote space via, you know, whether it's satellites or humans or all the things in between all the applications. I'm hoping it'll continue to grow and grow and grow. And so um, I always say that my goal is to buy spaceflight tickets for myself and my kids, because I think that, you know, by the time they're old enough, and by the time I can afford something like that, um, that'll be more commonplace. For sure. You know, it's... <laughs> It's one of those things that the the vision that a lot of the space entrepreneurs have, whether it's Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, they're able to articulate a singular vision that, you know, personally, I think NASA lacks at some points. And that's just because it's, you know, it's an executive branch agency. Their goals can change a little bit. So, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, what you see from coming from those commercial companies in the next couple decades? Sure. Um, so already you have a pretty um, well-sustained economy when it comes to satellites and um, you know data and broadband and all the uh, communications that we rely on on a daily basis and don't think about. Um, and so I feel like that is the trend that's going to continue. Um, you've got 
various companies working on background applications. So you've got a lot of earth observation data and we use this in so many different ways and we use it without thinking about it. Same with the GPS data and other countries have different um, navigational systems that tie into all kinds of networks besides mapping. You've got, you know, transactions and, and all kinds of things, the things that happen in the background. So that is really interesting to me because we as a society, we think about space as this, you know, person landing on the moon or, or you know, space <laughs> colonies or whatever it may be. But it's really the background stuff that sneaks in there and infiltrates our everyday living. I'm speaking to you on a uh, iPhone. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that kind of background stuff that we all take for granted. And that is a sustained market that is profitable and will continue to be profitable because the entire entirety of our society uses these kinds of tools. Um, and then there is the really cool futuristic stuff, the, the, you know, the human space transportation and the CubeSats and um, all the different ways that um, companies are going to grow the industry. And, and my goal has always been to help contribute in some small way to the expanding of human presence outside of our solar system. And not only for, you know, economic benefit, but also for scientific benefit, because it, who knows what kind of scientific discoveries we're going to find if we set up a station on the moon or set up a station on Mars or wherever it is that we go to. I think that there's there's a great chance that we'll find things that we haven't even thought of yet. Well, I think that's where, you know, for us and also for previous generations as well, like you were saying, is, you know, the millennials that you talk to, it's that optimism for these, you know, next great breakthroughs. So, you know, I think that permeates everything, you know, all of the work that we do, whether it's, you know, I'm in manufacturing, whether you know, we're building something or whether it's the scientists that are actually studying um, other worlds. I think that optimism is apparent in all you know different sectors in the industry yeah i agree and it's really heartening to see um investors have that same level of optimism investors of course want to make money that's their primary goal but you've got um some some of the billionaires and millionaires that um just want to contribute money because they think it's cool and <laughs> i see that for example with the dear moon project where someone is contributing money not only to progress a space vehicle, but also to fly artists because that is part of the human experience and, and space is cool and, and the moon is something that is going to inspire humanity. It already does and already has for centuries. Um, and and so I love that um, multidisciplinary aspect of space. I talk to a lot of students and I always emphasize how multidisciplinary space is. It's not just the scientists and engineers. Mm -hmm. It's also everything else that needs to come together to have space work. Uh, and, I, and I think that as space continues to grow, we're going to see more and more um, of the other fields, and there's just countless other fields, get more involved in space. Well, I think we're almost reaching kind of a cultural tipping point as well. I mean, you had like the Vans, NASA shoes, Nike's releasing these new shuttle-inspired <laughs> shoes. It You know, when space is starting to, you know, permeate into sneaker culture, that to me that that represents a point that I don't know if we've ever really been at before with in terms of how space is impacting the popular culture. What do you think about that? Oh, I definitely think it's 
already happened and you look back in the 50s and 60s and 70s and you can see those kinds of pop culture references and uh, you know the the apparel and, sure. and other merchandise and I think that was a really hot thing back in especially the Apollo days okay. and then I, I you know I wasn't alive in the, in the <laughs> 70s and, and half of the 80s but um, I do believe that just based on other people's perceptions is that kind of died down and got yeah. quieter and now it we're seeing a resurgence and we're largely seeing a resurgence due to the big names like Elon Musk and SpaceX. You know, those kinds of big names carry out to all of culture. NASA's always been a really popular brand globally, but now you are seeing more SpaceX apparel. And I'm using SpaceX because they're the biggest brand sure. that I believe is out there aside from NASA, um, globally speaking. And so as we continue to build up space and you're going to see more and more of those other brands pop up, not just NASA, but you know Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin and, and some of the other major players that are going to continue to inspire. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And it's, it's interesting, too. It's not just the brands, but other states are starting to get involved with spaceports. I think you've, you um, contributed to the spaceport Camden, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so Spaceport Camden is located in Camden County, Georgia, which is southeast Georgia, almost on, on the Florida border. So you're almost there in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and it is a project that's been ongoing for several years. I moved to Georgia two years ago, so I was not there for the initial start of this project. But um, I had previous private spaceport experience and was able to help contribute to um, a little bit to what they're trying to do. And it's, it's an ongoing process because they need to get approval from the FAA um, something called an environmental impact statement in which the FAA approves that everything is safe and the public isn't going to be harmed and they take into account all the different impacts that could happen uh, and they just make sure that it's something that will benefit the community there and I don't have anything to do with the FAA, so I leave that part alone. What I did for them is I looked at the business and the education and the tourism and um, all the other impacts that would happen or could happen, not only due to the spaceport, but also due to the research park that will be adjacent to the spaceport. And you're already seeing um, activity happen at Camden. For example, there was a, a vector launch in 2017. It was not a space launch. It was a low-altitude test launch um, because they haven't gotten the FAA yet, so we can't do space launches down there yet. And then also, um, just today was announced that the Georgia Tech Student uh, Rocket Club is planning to do a test launch down there as well. And so you're definitely seeing more and more interest, not only in Georgia, but it seems like half the states now, and I've lost track to be honest with you, but it seems like quite a number of states are either in the process of forming a spaceport or have already formed a spaceport, whether or not it's active. Yeah. Nothing that exciting. Oh, I, I asked, definitely. I asked, um, former head of the FAA uh, Office of Spaceport Transportation, um, George Neal, I asked him once, you know, is there too many? <laughs> like, <laughs> should there be this many spaceports with not enough activity? But, you know, it's sort of a chicken egg problem, whereas it's not a bad thing to have too many spaceports. You need those destinations and you need the vehicles and you need the the missions, for lack of a better term, sure. the things that'll go on the, the rockets. You need all three of those to come together. And if you are lacking in one, there's going to be a bottleneck but having the different spaceports around the country and around the world, I think will help build the momentum for the, the rockets and the payloads. 
Well, yeah, I mean, here in Colorado, they they were going through that last summer. Yes, Eastport, Colorado. Exactly. And, you know, for us, we have CU, we have School of Mines, we have all of mm-hmm. these institutions. Boulder that, and the, exactly. the military. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we have all these people that I'm sure would love to launch to space from Colorado. And now, the, you know, the foundation's at least been laid for that. So it's it's heartening to see the uh, industry moving towards that and uh, states allowing you know, research institutions, uh, military, you know, launches from just about anywhere. So it's really cool to see. It is. And, and I know, I, you know, I, I look at it from a skeptical point of view. I see like the Spaceport America and how they've succeeded and failed over the years. And so I'm not blind to the fact that there's going to be struggles and there's going to be failures and, and it's not going to be a good idea for all these spaceports to exist simultaneously without activity happening because that doesn't benefit anyone if they just sit dormant. Sure. You get a lot of criticisms that way. And that's what you're seeing from some of the opposition of the um, general public is that why should we waste all this taxpayer money on things that are not operational or not going to contribute to the society or the community? Um, and, and that's a valid point. It is. But on the other hand, you can't have them come if it doesn't already exist. <laughs> so it's... It's um, very rare for someone like SpaceX to pick Boca Chica, Texas and, and just, you know, out of nowhere and build something there. You know, that doesn't always happen. In fact, you can't count on that happening. So you need to have some kind of foundation laid so that companies know that you exist and yeah. that you want their business. Well, especially with smaller launches and CubeSats, too. You don't have to oh, yes. have a massive rocket to get to orbit anymore. Um, the, the technological advances with CubeSats are just staggering. I mean, you had the Marco satellites out at Mars, CubeSats operating near another blade flying by another planet that that to yeah, me I love that. yeah that's just such a technological tipping point with what we can do with miniaturization that it's good to know that you're not just reliant on you know launching from florida or from texas eventually or california you can be able to launch those just about anywhere so that's good to know Absolutely. And you're going to see more and more CubeSats being launched. And I'm not just talking about you know, the giant constellations that certain companies are trying to do. I'm also talking about the smaller student-led or small company payloads. And in fact, we had uh, one company get in trouble with the FCC last year <laughs> because they launched too small, <laughs> too teeny tiny. I think there were one quarter size CubeSats oh or my something gosh. like that. Yeah, really, really small. And the FCC's concern was, can you safely track those? And they didn't think they could, but it turns out you can. Um, but the FCC <laughs> actually denied the application for Swarm Technologies, and um, that was a big mess, and I'm not going to go into that too much, but you can read about that. But my point is that they're getting smaller, and they're getting more capable, and, and of course, when you get into concerns about space situational awareness, and mm-hmm. space debris, and uh, traffic, space traffic management, and all of those other concerns, or how much is too much, and can you modify the orbits, and how long should they be in orbit, and have guidance to deorbit, or um, new modules that you can attach to deorbit, different things that you have to run into there, but I feel like that's almost a good problem to have. You don't want a Kessler syndrome <laughs> where it's the like the, the Sandra Bullock movie yeah. where everything collides together. You know, you don't want that. And that was unrealistic of that movie, but it was still a fun movie. Um, you don't want, you know, collisions in space. And, and you, we have seen that in the past with an active sure. satellite colliding into an, an unactive set, or I should say the other way around, a deactivated satellite colliding into an active satellite creates a lot of space debris. So you don't want that. But on the other hand, it's a great problem to have if you've got too much activity in space. That means that's a thriving sector. Sure. And that's a good problem to have that means other companies are going to have to come up with solutions exactly. and that's that's great i love the different um applications and spin-off applications that come from that 
Yeah, well, you know, the besides the space debris, you know, what else would you see as one of the biggest challenges, you know, in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, broadband, um, you know, signaling and, and channels, that's an issue right now is who gets allocated what, what broadband signals and, and ranges. And um, that's a big mess right now. Yeah. And I don't know how they're going to resolve that. I haven't been following that very closely, but I do know that's a, a problem where you only have a limited amount of, um, you know, broadband to, to divvy out to all these companies and who gets priority um, and why. And, and so that's an issue. It's yeah. again a good issue to have. But, well, it's almost um, like the it, it is an issue. It's almost like the the fights over you know what countries can have satellites in a geostationary orbit. Right. It's, except now we don't have to send something out to geostationary orbit. It can be in low Earth orbit, and now we're fighting. You know, going to be you know conflicts over the spectrum. So it'll definitely be interesting to see how that plays out over the next couple of years. So yeah, and I, I do like that the satellites are trending to smaller and trending to lower altitude, whether that's, you know, Leo or Mio, um, because of the lower latency, um, that is lower delay. And so the technology is improving so that we can improve the the information that we get from these satellites. And again, I love the, what you mentioned, Marco, Marco 1 and Marco 2 to the moon. I love that. I know that there's plans to send CubeSats to the moon as well in cislunar orbit and, and beyond. You know, I, I love that we've got like solar sail technology. You can attach to a little CubeSat and send that off to, <laughs> all, you know, follow the Voyager missions, you know, something like that. And it's amazing what we are going to be able to accomplish in the future with this, the miniaturization of this technology. Well, that's, that's a big thing too. And the cost associated with with it as well because the older you know bigger satellites for those older types of processors they had to just do crazy things to make sure they were radiation hardened now it's, they're starting to use you know off-the-shelf components that are small enough fast enough and fault tolerant enough to actually work in pretty hostile environments so it's, it's incredible to see just how much has happened i mean in the last 10 years with. Yeah, and it's only going to continue to get yeah. better. And I, I really do appreciate all the, the the people involved in making this better. Because I myself am not an engineer; I'm a scientist, and so <laughs> I can tell you the theory. But the people who actually build this and, and fly it, and the people who raise the money to fly, I, I love that. I love being part of the the global space community that ties into all of these advances. And it really is a um, an optimistic way to look about the world because you've got all of the problems and and these. Are really truly solutions. Um, yes, we have our own problems, but for the most part, we are trying to provide solutions for the world in various ways. And, and I think that is an excellent way to look at the world. I, I love this viewpoint that comes with working in our industry. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Laura, thank you for coming on the podcast. I look forward to having you on again in the future. It was a lot of fun talking. Anytime. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Laura as much as I did. I'm looking forward to having her on again in the future. Check out the show notes for links to her Kickstarter. I back the book and it looks like it's going to be a really cool project. If you're in management or if you're yourself a millennial in the space industry, I think it's worth checking out. If you're new to the podcast, I would appreciate it if you could subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. More reviews help more people find out about the show. Until next time... I'm John Mulnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.